guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am doing so good. Yesterday was Halloween, the day that we're recording this. Yesterday was Halloween, and it was such a great night for me and my family. We had such an awesome time going trick-or-treating. How was your Halloween? It was great. My son went up to every home, and while they were just giving him candy, he would yell, does this have egg in it? And when they didn't know, he would say, oh, does it have egg in it? I was like, buddy, we can... (laughs) We'll talk about it after. He was like very ticked off. People did not know the ingredients of candy they were handing. Oh. <laughs> so it makes for an entertaining night. And yeah, so it was fun though. It's always it's always a blast doing that. Before our kids get too big, our kids are getting a little older. So we don't have much time left to do this with them. Yeah, yeah. It was great. I really, really enjoyed uh just spending Halloween with my kids again, like you said, it is the years are dwindling that they're going to be interested in it. My older son, he's 10 now, so he still really got into dressing up and everything, but I feel like he wasn't as into it this year as he was in past years. Like he didn't really, right. you know, he didn't want to go out and be seen in his costume, you know, it, <laughs> like during the day, like he was fine for trick or treating, but my little guy wanted to wear his costume all day, at, you know, yesterday. And then my older son was like, no, I'm not going to put that on until, until I have to. So I can kind of sense that things are kind of going away for him in that area. Yeah. You should borrow my son. He wore his all day today as well. We walked to the neighborhood and it looked very confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now we are in November and Yay. I'm excited about that. I love this time of year. It's really a beautiful time of year, especially in Florida. I think we might finally start seeing some cooler weather now that it's November, maybe if we're lucky. Super lucky. We'd have to be real, real lucky lucky to get that. But Today felt like a little bit of fall was like sneaking in, even though the rest of the country was like snowing. We like could wear a sweater for five minutes before we burned up instead of the usual 12 seconds. So yeah. it was nice. Well, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be back to 90 degrees. So exactly. We're just enjoying it while we can. So we're going to get right into it this week. We're kind of unintentionally keeping up with the serial killer theme that we've had for a few of the recent episodes. And today we're going to be talking about another killer that is responsible for multiple murders. This story was suggested to us by one of my good friends' husbands because it happened near their hometown and he thought that it would be interesting for us to talk about on the show. So I'm just going to shout them out, Leah and Dirk. I love them so much. This case is particularly interesting because it really is one of the first cases where a killer actually used the internet to lure his victims. And it's also kind of interesting because this man got away with murder for 15 years before his fate finally caught up with him. John Edward Robinson was a father and grandfather. He was active in the church and outwardly a very respectable man, but under the surface, he was actually a habitual liar and a con man who successfully fooled and ripped off many different people in his hometown of Overland Park, Kansas. Before we get into the details of John Robinson's crimes, we're going to learn a little bit about where they took place in this week's segment of We Googled This City. Overland Park has a population of over 190,000 residents as of the 2017 census. Overland Park is actually a suburb of Kansas City's metropolitan, and in fact, it's the largest suburb of their metropolitan. It's so large, in fact, that it now is the second most populous city in Kansas, coming in behind Wichita. 
Overland's weather is actually pretty unique. It lies in a transition zone between North America's humid continental climate zones and humid subtropical climate, which for the layman or people like me that took and dropped and basically failed meteorology, it means that they experience both hot and humid summers as well as cold and dry winters. I We have the whole, like the hot and humid summers. I don't know that I could do both. I feel like I want to do both. Okay. <laughs> In life. I mean, I would I like, like I seasons. I would love seasons. I would love to experience seasons. And um, my friends who suggested this episode, I know that they love the weather there because it doesn't snow like a ton, but just enough okay. so that you can get that kind of feel of winter, but it's not like too over the top. Okay, fine. Then I'm neutral on having that kind of weather. <laughs> I'm used to the hot and humid, but I just don't know. I like the idea of cold weather, but I don't know how long I could do it. But then people are vice versa. They can't deal with the heat. So we're all unique and we like different things, which is why we all live all over the map. So in TV and movie news, Overland Park has been the setting for a few television and television adjacent things. In 2008, the documentary series High School Confidential was filmed there. And from 2009 to 2011, the United States of Terra was based there. Did you ever see either of those by chance? I've never even heard of either of those. So High School Confidential I've heard of, and now I'm like very disappointed in myself for never watching. But the United States of Terra was on Showtime. And it was really interesting and kind of strange, but I enjoyed it, but it wasn't on very long. In 1909, the Wright brothers brought their air show to Overland, making it the first flight that was west of the Mississippi. And when in doubt with facts, we love to play a game here. So here is a game. I should say I love to play a game and force Mandy into a game. Yeah, so this here- is the first time I'm hearing about this. So, <laughs> so here is a game called Law or No Law. And I would cue the music, but again, we just never have music for these things. So Mandy, these are just true and false questions. You tell me if you think these laws are real or if I made them up. Okay. Uh, Good luck to you because (laughs) my brain is very whacked. So here we go. In Lawrence, Kansas, no one may wear a bee in their hat. True or false? True. Good job. That's true. Word is out whether or not you can wear a bee in your bonnet, though. So number two, it is illegal for restaurants to sell cherry pie a la mode on Sundays in Kansas. I'm going to say false. This is also true. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I like, And I found this on several things. So it's not just like this weird myth thing that I found on one really weird website. Yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. Like the a la mode actually makes a big difference apparently. I don't know. But side note, the band Warrant is not allowed to play in Kansas on Sundays. And that oh is my a gosh. joke. No, no, no. That's not true. That part's not true. It's because they sing the song Cherry Pie. That's all I got. Well, you know, so, I'm really gullible, so I will believe it. <laughs> I just figured you'd be like, okay, Melissa, whatever. And then one person at home would be like, I got you, Melissa. I understood that. <laughs> so in Russell, Kansas, musical car horns are banned. True or false? True. True again. Russell, Kansas has really had enough of everyone's tomfoolery and they are just not dealing with car horns. Okay, well, those are so annoying. A car horn that's like anything other than a car horn is so obnoxious. The other day I was in the car and I was at a stoplight and uh, the light turned green and the person in front of me was at the front and they weren't going. So the guy behind me had this big obnoxious truck that was like raised up on these tires and he decided to honk his horn, but it was like a train horn. And I almost 
almost came out of my skin from like him doing that behind me. So yeah, please just don't. If you ever considered getting anything installed that is not a regular car horn, just don't. Just don't do it. It's very annoying and very obnoxious and everyone hates you if you do it. (laughs) Whoa. Everyone noticed Mandy said that, not me. Um, But (laughs) I would like to add, so I can be hated as well, that the idea of... um, what is it called? Ringback tones. When you call somebody, the very rare event that you have to call somebody and you hear a song that they sing with their girlfriends at karaoke night (laughs) blaring in your ear, that's not appreciated either. I feel like Russell Kansas should also get on board and ban that as well. So Mandy and I are all for banning people having fun with music and noise (laughs) ever. So last one, if two trains meet on the same track in Kansas, neither shall proceed until the other has passed. Do you think that is true or false? Well, if they that meet each even other. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I know. I read it three times and it still doesn't make sense to me. If they meet, neither one can proceed until the other one has passed. Okay. So I'm going to say true since you just said you read it. I did give that away pretty, <laughs> pretty <laughs> hardcore. So, yeah. So, but this makes me wonder if trains are even a thing in Kansas. How can you even have this? Or are they just dust in the wind? And that's my second 80s song reference in here. So, (laughs) okay, Mandy, I have done enough damage here. Let's get back to the story. Okay. So, this week, we're going to start off by first introducing the killer and talking a little about his background and where he came from. John Edward Robinson was born on December 27, 1943, in Cicero, Illinois. He was the third of five children born to Alberta and Henry Robinson. The family was really pretty unremarkable for the most part. They lived in a modest home, and they really kept to themselves. John's father was a machinist with an on-again, off-again drinking problem that led to a few arrests and interrupted the family's lives when, when those things took place. His mother, Alberta, picked up the slack and kept all five of the children in line with a very heavy disciplinary hand. She ruled her home with an iron fist and expected really a lot from her children. Her methods didn't work well with all of her kids, but John seemed to respond well to his mother's expectations and her demanding parenting style. Early in his teen years, he joined the Eagle Scouts and eventually became the senior patrol leader of his troop, and he had aspirations of one day becoming a priest and providing his life in service to the Vatican. He was accepted into Quigley Preparatory Seminary in Chicago, where he pretty much just blended in with the crowd. He wasn't really a troublemaker, and he was a good enough student, but he was a little arrogant at times and really didn't leave a lasting impression, whether it be positive or negative, on anyone that knew him from the school. Later, John went to Cicero's Morton Junior College, where he claimed to have become an x-ray technician, although records show that he did not actually graduate from that school. He eventually landed a job at a Chicago hospital working in the x-ray department, despite actually having very little in the way of credentials. Yikes. Yeah. In 1964, he met Nancy Jo Lynch, and she became pregnant with John's child shortly thereafter. It was a boy that they named John Jr. They had a quick shotgun wedding, but their marriage would go on to last decades, despite the many flaws in John's personality, including his tendency towards infidelity. Nancy Jo would get to see all the different shades of John Edward Robinson. 
The first real bit of trouble the newlyweds had to endure was in 1967 when John was caught embezzling money from his own employer, Dr. Wallace Graham. By this point, he had stolen around $33,000. Although he was found guilty of this crime, he managed to keep himself out of jail and only served three years of probation. John went on to have other odd jobs, which he also stole from, but was either never caught or never prosecuted. He eventually landed a job with Mobile Oil, who did not know about his previous history with embezzlement, because John's probation officer actually decided not to tell the company, stating that John was, quote, responding extremely well to probation supervision, end quote, and was encouraged to advance as far as possible with Mobile Oil. It wasn't long before John got caught stealing from them, too, but this time it wasn't even money he was stealing. It was 6,200 postage stamps. That is an interesting... Yeah. One. Like, what? Why? What are you going to do with those? I mean, I guess if you steal them, you can then resell them. Don't you think the post office has a hard enough time selling stamps? Yeah. It's weird. I know. Well, I was trying to think of something to compare this to. Like, for example, I, I mean, just there's many different kinds of fraud where people will collect, you know, they will get an item for either free or cheap and sure. then turn around and sell it for full price and then they, you know, pocket the profit. But stamps is a really, really bizarre thing to to do that with, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, unless forever stamp started then and he really thought maybe in 30 years this two-cent stamp will be 30 cents and I can really rack up 28 cents at a time. But it seems like a very weird thing to do. But also, it almost makes you think like this guy was just going to steal. He just wanted to, you know, anything he could get his hands on. That's just what he was going to do. So back in the mid-70s, the price of a postage stamp was $0.10, and so it's really only worth about $620, or roughly $2,900 today, according to a couple of inflation calculators. After being charged with theft in that instance, John and Nancy Joe moved to Chicago, where he held a job for a short period of time before once again being caught embezzling money. His father bailed him out of that one by paying his restitution so criminal charges would be dropped. At that time, he and Nancy Joe moved to Kansas City area, but he was arrested a short time later for violating the terms of his probation. After spending a few weeks in jail, he was released, but his probation was extended by five years. So we could go on and on about this pattern of stealing from jobs and embezzling money because this is really a trend that he continued throughout his entire life. But if we listed off every company he stole from or every time he was arrested and spent time in jail, we would be here all day just talking about that. This man was really a habitual con artist. It came really easy for him because outwardly he appeared very professional and trustworthy, and he was always looking his best and really exuding confidence when he spoke. He was able to fool many, many people. By the time John was in his mid-30s, he was a father of four, living in a neighborhood in Olathe, Kansas called Pleasant Valley Farms, where he maintained a very wholesome outward appearance. He became a scoutmaster, coached and refereed for his kids' sports teams, participated in community events, and he was even Santa at one point for the neighborhood kids. He even became a Sunday school teacher at a Presbyterian church, in spite actually being Catholic. He had switched career paths and was now the founder of a new company called HydroGrow Inc. The company was dedicated to growing vegetables hydroponically and educating the masses about indoor home hydroponics. Of course, his main goal was still to cheat and steal his way to riches this entire time, and he did even more since in jail for charges related to swindling around $25,000 out of a shareholder. In 1977, John was named Man of the Year by the Kansas City Times. 
He really won this award largely because he employed people with disabilities. Although nobody knew at the time that the entire company was a scam and a cover for John to lie and steal his way to riches. This is very upsetting to me because he's clearly using these people that he's hired as a cover. Nobody's going to really want to look into this. They think he's doing this really nice thing in his community. And so who's going to really look and think, well, this guy is probably out there stealing money. No, this is the nice guy. This is a guy doing things for, you know, other people in, in his community and we should only honor him and look up to him. Yeah. It's just such garbage that people are like this. That's Definitely. the end of my Melissa rant. Yeah. So it was around this time, the early 80s, that John also began dabbling in a new interest. He was involved in a secret BDSM lifestyle, completely unbeknownst to his wife and children, and he would have various affairs with several different women. At one point, he was stealing thousands of dollars from the company he worked for and funded an apartment where he would actually take co-workers to have sexual encounters. He also began running a brothel out of this apartment to generate extra income for himself. He reportedly joined a sadomasochism cult called the International Council of Masters, and the goal of this cult was to lure victims to be tortured and raped by members of the cult. And this is really, him joining this cult is really where things took a turn for this man. His abuse towards women began at home, where he was physically abusing his wife Nancy, as well as neglecting the family pets. In the summer of 1982, John started brazenly coming along to his neighbor's wives and getting into fights with the husbands when they tried to confront him for this. Nancy Jo contemplated divorcing John numerous times over the years, but ultimately decided to stay by his side and keep their family together. Unfortunately, things were only going to get worse and a lot more dangerous for this family. In 1984, John was running yet another bogus company in Overland Park called Equi2, whose cover story was that they provided consulting services to medical, agricultural, and charitable ventures. I don't know what that even means. So sometimes when there's that many words together, I like blank out halfway through. And I think that's what he was hoping people would do, just like tune out. (laughs) Well, it worked for me if that's what he was going for. Yeah, exactly. So he hired a 19-year-old young woman named Paula Godfrey as a sales representative for this new company. She had only been out of high school for about a year and was really excited for this new opportunity. John had told her that he wanted to pay for her to take some clerical skills training classes in Texas, and he even picked her up from her parents' house with everyone believing that he was taking Paula to the airport so that she could go on this trip to Texas and do this training. This was actually the last time that Paula's parents would ever see her. When Paula didn't call home later that evening or any time over the next couple of days, they became concerned and her parents went to San Antonio themselves to try and find her. What they ended up finding out was that she never actually checked into the hotel that she was supposed to be staying at. When the Godfreys confronted John about their daughter's whereabouts, he denied knowing anything at all about where she was. A few days later, a mysterious letter showed up at the Godfrey's home. It was typed in poor grammar and had bad language, and it was allegedly from Paula herself. And the letter stated that she just simply did not wish to see her family anymore. Paula's parents tried to get the police involved because they, of course, did not believe that this letter actually came from their daughter, 
but the police determined that the letter was legitimate and there was no investigation into Paula's disappearance. It would actually be years before anyone would figure out what happened to her and how she had just become the very first victim of John Edward Robinson. And we are going to get into so much more about this story after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. The word wedding comes from the Italian word wed, which translates into the best and most stressful day of your life. Just kidding. But really, if you've planned a wedding or are planning a wedding or know someone who's been married or even watched a wedding on TV, you know that it really probably should be. Thankfully, Zola is there to help make wedding planning a whole lot easier. Working with Zola is incredibly simple. First, you start with a free wedding website that's really just a breeze to navigate and is so easy to use. It takes just minutes to set up and customize. And there are hundreds of beautiful wedding website designs to choose from, all with matching invitation suites. I was looking at the site today and I just love that Zola is so easy to go through. Plus, you can add so many specific details to your wedding on your own page. When I got married, we had to cut out those little pieces of paper that showed where we were registered and then you throw those in an envelope with the wedding invitations I actually made. Zola would have made this so much easier and would have definitely classed it up a little bit. Okay, a lot. Speaking of invitations, Zola's invitation prices are very friendly. They believe that wedding paper shouldn't blow your budget. You can use that extra money you're saving on invitations and put it towards an ice cream truck to have at your big day. With Zola, you can not only give guests information about the wedding, but you can create a registry right in one central location that includes amazing brands like OXO and Cuisinart to Brooklyn and an Airbnb. Plus, couples and guests love free shipping, smart returns, price matching, group gifting, and more. I wish Zola had been a thing back when I got married, but since it wasn't, I'm glad we can share it with all of you. Build your free wedding website on Zola and get $50 towards your registry. Go to Zola.com slash moms and get started today. Again, to build your free wedding website on Zola and get $50 towards your registry, go to Zola, that's Z-O-L-A dot com slash moms and get started today. You stress about errands, your kids' homework, and even seeing those weird cousins in a few months at holiday get-togethers. So why not take the stress out of dinner by ordering HelloFresh? HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that is truly second to none. This month, HelloFresh sent me one of my favorite meals, pork carnita tacos with pickled onion and Monterey Jack cheese. I had no idea what a pickled onion would taste like, but let me tell you, it is delicious. And what I really love is that HelloFresh makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality, regardless of your comfort in the kitchen, even when your normal idea of a good meal is hot dogs in an actual hot dog bun. Plus, HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you know you'll get something delicious every time. My family always knows when they see the HelloFresh box, they will be eating great that week. From step-by-step recipes to pre-measured ingredients, you'll have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes, which is great because half the reason you want to skip a nicer meal is because of the time and effort it takes. But HelloFresh makes that a thing of the past. Plus, there is something for everyone. From family recipes to calorie smart and vegetarian and fun menu series like Hall of Fame and Kraft Burgers. For a limited time only, get nine free meals with HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MomsAndMurder9 and enter MomsAndMurder9. Again, for a limited time only, get nine free meals with HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MomsAndMurder9 and enter MomsAndMurder9. And now back to the episode. 
Before the break, we were talking about how John Robinson had been the last person to see 19-year-old Paula Godfrey alive. To this day, no trace of her has ever been found. Little did John's wife and children know, but John was involving himself into deeper and darker activities, mostly involving the sadomasochism cult he was in. But he did an extraordinarily good job of playing the part of family man and provider at home as well. He even took his family on vacation, and he was really perceived as being a good father and grandfather. But still, John's other life raged on, and he was thinking of new and more creative ways to find women that he could manipulate and abuse. It just so happened that at the same point in time, John's brother and sister-in-law were looking into adopting a baby in a private adoption, and John actually agreed to help them find an opportunity. But John didn't exactly have a wholesome idea in mind when it came to finding a baby for his brother to adopt. He had a much more sinister idea. He would find the perfect baby to kidnap for his brother. This is what I don't get. What is it behind this? It's it's just because he likes doing terrible things, right? Because yeah, there's yeah. no there's n- no reason. No, there's literally no reason for any of this, but it does seem like he just gets his rocks off just doing terrible things and committing crimes and being just a terrible, terrible person. In his very elaborate ploy, he successfully faked a new benevolent organization that was supposed to provide housing and job training plus a monthly allowance to unwed mothers in need. How convenient. At this time, he was using the fake name of John Osborne. He claimed that funding for the organization would come from major benefactors such as IBM and Xerox. When he spoke about the organization and their mission, he had an answer for really everything and seemed to really know how to run such a charity. He convinced a local nonprofit as well as the Truman Medical Center to refer potential candidates to him. And that's how he was eventually connected with a woman named Lisa Stasi. Lisa had found herself in a really unfortunate situation after a failed relationship with an abusive young sailor that resulted in the birth of a baby girl named Tiffany. Tiffany was just four months old when she and her mom, Lisa, were living in a battered women's shelter in January of 1985. The shelter actually connected her with John, who promised her an $800 a month job, an apartment, and an opportunity to get on her feet and have a better life for herself and her new baby. Although Lisa was initially very grateful and humbled by John's offer, things started to get weird very quickly. When John picked Lisa and baby Tiffany up from the medical center, instead of taking them to their new apartment, he took them to a cheap motel where he already had two other women checked in. He promised Lisa that he was just finalizing her travel plans and then asked her to do something really strange. He wanted her to sign four pieces of blank stationery and give him the names and addresses of her relatives. Later that evening, Lisa made a phone call to her mother-in-law where she explained the situation about this nice man helping her get on her feet, but she seemed really concerned about signing these blank papers. Lisa hung up after saying, quote, I've got to go. Here they are, end quote. No one ever heard from Lisa again. This makes me so sad because she's in this really desperate place. And so this person's promising you all this. And what are you going to do? You're going to go with what they're saying in hopes that you've got this. They're going to they're going to hold up their end of the bargain, really. Well, yeah, you know, she had this tiny new baby. And I mean, I as a mom, I can't imagine a more desperate situation than having a little baby like that and being not able to take care of yourself. And so you have somebody come along and says, you know, I can give you these things. I can get you in an apartment. I can give you work so that you can have money. And yeah, you want to believe that that's going to be true and that that's going to be your kind of your your way in and your ticket like out of your situation. For so sure. it is, it's very sad. 
So Lisa's in-laws actually called the police and the FBI the following day. When officers followed up to the motel where Lisa had been staying, they learned that she and the baby had checked out of the room, and the room was actually paid for by John Robinson, and he paid for it with his Equi2 corporate credit card. Of course, when John was confronted by these family members, he simply denied having any knowledge about what could have happened to Lisa and baby Tiffany. In reality, he did know exactly what happened to them. He had already killed Lisa and kidnapped her four-month-old infant, who he had taken to his own home and told his wife Nancy that he had paid $4,000 for this baby through a private adoption. And of course, the whole thing was that he did this so that his brother and his sister-in-law could adopt this baby. So he somehow managed to get adoption papers from a local attorney's office. And as I said, he had promised this child to his brother and sister-in-law who were actually flying in from Chicago to adopt the baby the very next day. They were completely oblivious to the truth about where this baby had come from. They are totally innocent in this whole entire, this whole thing. They had no idea. Which is something I want to like reiterate because it comes up later in the story that this family, you know, they really went through a lot, obviously, with this whole thing. But they did not know that he had done this and that that's how he had gotten this baby. So, in fact, John had actually thought of everything. And he even gave his brother and wife notarized court documents about the adoption as well as a birth certificate. And all of these documents, of course, were forged. When John's brother questioned him about how the baby came to him, John told them that the child's mother had taken her own life and left the baby behind in a shelter. Wow. The ecstatic new parents were thrilled to give this child a wonderful life, and they changed her name from Tiffany to Heather Tiffany. Meanwhile, strange letters from Lisa started surfacing, similar to the mysterious letters that Paula Godfrey's parents were receiving. These letters from Lisa also stated that she did not wish to have any contact with her family and that she had taken her baby Tiffany and had left town to start a new life. Lisa and baby Tiffany had apparently just vanished and nobody was really looking for them. John Robinson's evil plan was working beautifully for him and he wasn't anywhere near being done yet. He continued to use the same trap to lure more young women to their eventual murders, but he had to be careful because the FBI was starting to watch him. There was an instance in 1985 where John had met a woman named Teresa Williams, who he planned on killing, but the FBI swooped in and moved the woman to a safe location before John could actually complete, you know, this task of whisking her off to her death. Can I ask a question? How did the FBI know that's what he was doing? Like... They were already investigating him for right. his all of the money stealing and stuff that he had been doing and laundering money and creating Bustling bogus and companies and things like that. So they were watching him for numerous other crimes. And then obviously as these different women start going missing and like he's the last one associated with them, right. it kind of becomes a thing. So they were watching him. That's crazy, though, that they, you know, can suspect this and move this woman out and they really can't do anything. You know, there's nothing, there's no other evidence saying he's actually done these things. These women are writing letters, they're missing, there's no body, and so they, their hands are really tied. But it is kind of crazy to be like, they they stopped this, but they, that's that's all they can do right now. Yeah. So a couple of years actually passed before John would even be able to strike again. 
1987, John offered a job to a woman named Catherine Clampett at his company, Equi2. Catherine was a single mother with a drug and alcohol problem who had recently moved from Texas to Kansas to stay with her brother while she got back on her feet. She left her child with her parents back in Texas. It was really common for Catherine to stay in hotels a lot for work, but on one particular occasion, Catherine never returned home to her brother's house, and she was officially reported missing on June 15, 1987. Just as John had claimed ignorance in the cases of these other women who had vanished, he did the same in this case. When he was confronted by Catherine's brother, he acted nonchalant and said that he had heard about her disappearance, but he didn't know anything else. There have been no signs of Catherine ever since, and there was insufficient evidence to link John to her disappearance. A short time later, John was convicted of defrauding the company Backcare Systems and was then convicted of another fraud that he committed against a local man in a bogus real estate deal. He was sentenced to serve between 6 to 19 years because of his already extensive background, and he appealed the sentence, but he finally did go to prison in May of 1987. One of the interesting things about this case that we were kind of just talking about was that he was carrying on all kinds of shady business in addition to luring and murdering women, and he really was on the FBI's radar. In fact, there were multiple different people and agencies trying their best to get John on any charge they could and there were heavy suspicions that he had something to do with the missing women and the baby. John ended up spending six years in prison for the fraud charges. While he was incarcerated, though, he was said to be a model inmate who never caused any problems and was quite pleasant to be around. He had really successfully fooled the jail officials into believing that he was really this nonviolent person and that he was not a threat to society. John was 49 years old when he got out of prison. While he was behind bars, his wife was forced to sell their estate and find work of her own, and their children at this point were all grown. It wasn't long before a new opportunity presented itself to John's murderous side. In 1994, the librarian from the prison, named Beverly Bonner, divorced her husband and quit her job. She went to work with John as the quote-unquote president of HydroGrow Inc., and as you might have guessed, she vanished without a trace in January of 1994. As you might have also guessed, members of her family received typed letters that were allegedly from Beverly, but they could never be traced back to a return address. In one letter, Beverly's family was instructed to send all of her mail, including, of course, her alimony checks, to a P.O. box in Olathe. Unbeknownst to the family, it was John who was picking up these checks. And just a few months later, he was picking up even more checks that didn't belong to him. John had already befriended his next victim, Sheila Faith. She was a widow with a teenage daughter with disabilities from Colorado, and John found her through an ad on the internet and lured her to Kansas with promises of taking care of her and her daughter. He's the biggest sicko. Both Sheila and her daughter Debbie vanished just as quickly as they arrived. After their disappearance, John picked up disability checks made out to the faiths just as he did with Beverly Bonner's checks. He managed to collect so much money from these checks that he was able to put a $95,000 down payment on a house for his son and grandchildren to live in on Big Pine Key here in Florida. Although he was still playing the part of doting dad and grandpa, he was really known around his own neighborhood as being a dirty old man. The women there felt really uncomfortable around him and for good reason. He was known to harass his female neighbors. He was still married to Nancy Joe at this point, but he spent much of his time searching the internet for things related to the BDSM lifestyle. Keep in mind, this is the 90s. The internet is really just becoming a thing. 
The first web browser was released to the public in 1991. So you can really just imagine how that changed things in people's households. In this case, John was becoming what may be the very first serial killer to use the internet as a tool in his schemes. And we're going to talk a lot more about how the internet changed things in this case after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. The holidays will be here before we know it. And we all know it's very easy to lose motivation to take care of yourself while you're running around to various holiday functions and kids' plays and you're shopping until you literally drop. This year, keep your energy up and take care of yourself with Noom. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps its users learn to develop a new relationship with food through their personalized courses. We all know that we should be eating healthy to take care of ourselves, but honestly, what does that look like in day-to-day life? Noom is designed to arm you with the building blocks you need to be successful in staying healthy, whether it's the holidays or not. And while your weight loss journey is personal, Noom believes you shouldn't have to be on that journey alone. That's why Noom pairs you with a goal specialist and the Noom community so that you can both give and get help from people that are going through the same things as you. We all have that 5 to 10 pound fluctuation that's the difference in fitting into our favorite pair of pants or not. For me, that's why I really love Noom. I'm not trying to fit into my clothes from high school, but I do want to feel comfortable in the clothes I own now. Noom helps me make better choices and helps keep me on track. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at noomnoom.com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's noom.com slash moms, the last weight loss program you'll ever need. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were starting to talk about how the internet became a useful tool for John Robinson to use to prey on women. Specifically, John would frequent BDSM chat rooms seeking a submissive who was willing to enter into a contractual relationship with him as their dominant. And this is how he met a college student named Isabella Luwicka in 1997. He managed to woo the young girl and convinced her to leave home to come be with him in Kansas. She told her parents that she was dropping out of Purdue University to go live with a rich entrepreneur who was offering her an internship. She, however, was different than his previous victims. 
She had signed an extensive, what they call slave contract. And it is thought that John had planned on actually marrying her because he actually purchased a marriage certificate, although he never actually picked it up from the courthouse or wherever you pick up marriage certificates from. But Isabella reportedly wore a wedding band and she also added Robinson to her name. But it doesn't appear that they were actually ever legally married. But she was different from his other victims in that she did not disappear immediately. In fact, she maintained a whole relationship with John for about two years before she was last seen in the summer of 1999. She had gone on a trip with John and never returned. And when John was asked what happened to her, he said that she got caught with marijuana and she was deported. Once Isabella was out of the picture, John wasted no time in looking for the next woman that he could lure in, and he went back to the internet and his BDSM chat rooms again. It was the fall of 1999, and it was just a few months after Isabella had disappeared when he met a woman named Suzette Troughton. Suzette was a 27-year-old healthcare worker from Michigan who developed a close friendship with John after meeting in an online game. Just as he had done numerous times before, John enticed Suzette with promises of employment and security. In this case, he offered her $60,000 a year to help him care for his ailing father. And this position was to include a lot of world travel. And that's kind of how he sold this position to get somebody to come and do it. You know, he said that not only are you going to make $60,000 a year, you're also going to get to see the world. So she was very excited about that, and she gushed to her friends and family about this lucky new opportunity that she had come across. She spent time looking up colleges abroad, so, you know, she had plans of studying while she was traveling across Europe, and she was just really, really excited about this. In addition to providing care to John's father, Suzette was also planning on signing a similar BDSM slave contract as the one that Isabella signed. In February of 2000, Suzette checked into a hotel in Kansas that John had reserved for her. She spoke with her family nearly every day that she was in Kansas and told her mom that she had decided to put her belongings into a storage unit since she would be leaving for her trip soon, this trip that they were going on to Europe. March 1st, 2000 was the last time that Suzette was ever heard from. She called her mom to say goodbye and said that they were leaving for their trip that day. About a week later, Suzette's parents each received a mysterious letter from her in the mail that talked about her plans to go to California with John. More letters were sent in the coming weeks to different family members. In Suzette's case, John had actually taken the time and made the effort to have these letters mailed from several different locations. He actually contacted people that he knew that were friends of his and said, hey, I need you to send this letter to this address. So yeah, he actually, he really thought things through like ahead of time to think, you know, I'm going to need these people to help me do this so I can, you know, continue pulling off this like terrible life, like string of crimes that I've already been committing. So he had these letters sent as though Suzette was really sending them as she's traveling around the world with him. So people sent these letters from California and Mexico And I think there was a couple of other places that they sent mail from. Numerous emails were sent from Suzette's hotmail address to various members of her family who began to get more and more suspicious that Suzette wouldn't just call them. 
And, you know, she had suddenly started sending letters and writing emails, which was unusual for her even at that time. When her family and friends grew more suspicious and worried, they contacted John, who told them that Suzette was no longer with him and that she had stolen money from him and taken off with a man named James Turner. So her family, of course, thinks, you know, the combination of all these things that John, you know, he's saying, I'm not with her anymore. She took off with this strange man. And, you know, they haven't really heard from her. They've heard emails and letters, but they haven't spoken to her. So they were really concerned. And they actually finally reported her missing to the Lenexa Police Department. Local authorities were already well aware of the many women who had gone missing in the area. And they already had their eye on John. The investigation into his possible involvement was really starting to heat up. And then in May of the same year, police got more evidence against him when a woman named Jean reported being assaulted by John after agreeing to enter into a BDSM relationship with him. The woman said that John's quote-unquote punishments were extreme and left marks on her skin, which she had not agreed to. Her encounter with John frightened her so much that she felt like she should report it to the police. After that, things really began to unravel for John. A week later, on June 2nd, officers swarmed the Robinsons' residence in Olathe and arrested him on sexual assault charges. The police were well-prepared and had already gotten a warrant to search the home, which turned up an insane amount of incriminating evidence. They took all of John's computers, which were five in total, and found evidence to support the theory that he was responsible for Lisa Stassi's disappearance. And Lisa, we've talked about so many people in this story, but she was the young woman with the four-month-old baby that we talked about earlier in the story. Specifically, they found stationery that was signed by Lisa more than 15 years earlier. Wow. Yeah. Another warrant allowed detectives to search a storage unit that John had rented out. Inside, they found a collection of items that linked John to the disappearance of Suzette Troughton and Isabel Lewicka, including lewd photographs, personal bank information, and sheets of blank stationery signed by the women. At this point, police, of course, know that they have stumbled across evidence that John Robinson was indeed a serial killer, and it became their mission to fully investigate the depths of his mounting crimes. It was soon learned that John owned 16 acres of land about an hour away from his residence in Olathe. Police executed a search warrant of the property and found the most damning evidence there. Two 55-gallon metal barrels were found near a shed on the property, and investigators located the bodies of two unknown females inside of them. They were taken to the medical examiner to determine their identities. In the meantime, detectives contacted authorities in Raymore, Missouri, where John evidently had another storage locker. The Olathe police were asking for help to get a warrant to search that locker for more evidence. This storage unit was even larger than the one that they had previously raided, and it was filled to the brim with clutter and junk. 40 minutes into the search, three more 55-gallon metal barrels were found in the back of the unit. Inside were the bodies of three more women, all whom had been in the barrels for years at that point. All the bodies recovered on John's property or in his storage units had been bludgeoned to death, likely with a hammer, and none of them had any defensive wounds. After a careful examination of the five bodies found in barrels, they were identified as Isabel Lewicka, Suzette Troughton, Beverly Bonner, and Sheila and Debbie Faith. The bodies were identified through various methods, including dental records and skeletal x-rays. Further evidence of John's involvement in the murders was also found. Blood and hair evidence belonging to the victims was found inside of John's own home. 
because some of the murders took place in Kansas and some took place in Missouri, two different states and agencies were conducting their own investigations. John Robinson was eventually charged in all five murders, plus the disappearance of Lisa Stasi, who still had yet to be found. And there was still a big question on their minds in that case of Lisa Stasi, which is what happened to her four-month-old baby Tiffany. As the investigation continued, it was realized that John's brother and his wife had adopted a baby girl just days after Lisa had disappeared, and it didn't take long for them to come up with this theory that the child they adopted was, in fact, Lisa Stasi's daughter. To confirm this, they would simply need the girl to submit her DNA to be matched with her father, who they already knew to be Carl Stasi. At this point, Tiffany who was now being called Heather and who had grown up knowing John Robinson as her uncle John was she was now 15 years old. Her adoptive parents had no idea that they had been raising the kidnapped daughter of a woman that had been murdered at the hands of their own family member. My gosh, that's just so much to take in. Just everything that's you a knew. Lot. Everything you knew was a lie. Yeah. So this shocking twist was really a confusing blow to Heather and to her adoptive parents who really tried their very, very best to shelter this teenager from the media backlash and all the prying that was taking place into their lives at this point. She actually dropped out of school. She lost her friends and she worried that she would even lose the only parents that she'd ever known. All of this, you know, while trying to come to grips with the fact that a man that she knew as her uncle actually was her mother's murderer and her own kidnapper. Wow. So she eventually won a $5 billion judgment against John so that he could never profit from these crimes, whether it be through a book or a movie or anything. And that was one of the things that, you know, she was awarded in all of this. It's just really terrible and sad to think about her at 15, you know, finding out all of this, that not only was your mom murdered, but then it's by this man that you have really grown up around your entire life. It's been your uncle, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, any of those things separately are terrible enough, but to put them all together, that's just so much to reconcile. And for her parents to reconcile, that's his brother who he's known has done all these, you know, crime. I'm sure that's been a topic of conversation in the family, but nobody sees this coming. John Robinson went to trial in October of 2002 in Kansas for the murders of Suzette Troughton and Isabel Lewicka. His wife, Nancy, took the stand and spoke in her husband's defense, saying that the man he was at home and the type of husband and father he was were not the same man that was guilty of these crimes. She said that a death sentence would be devastating to her children and grandchildren. I feel for her. She was a victim in all of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. That same month, a jury unanimously found him guilty on all counts. John was given two death sentences and also a life imprisonment sentence, and that's because Lisa Stasi went missing before Kansas had reinstated the death penalty. After his Kansas conviction, he went on trial again in Missouri for the murders of Beverly Bonner, the Faith Sisters, Catherine Clampett, and Paula Godfrey. John actually agreed to plead guilty to those murders, but said he would not show police where the missing bodies were located. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. The bodies of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, and Lisa Stasi have never been found. John is currently on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas, where he evidently draws artwork and auctions it off at sites like murderauction.com. Some of his work is also on display over at windowsondeathrow.com. 
Three years after his conviction in 2005, Nancy Joe filed for divorce from John. Heather, who was formerly known as Tiffany, is trying to move forward with her life, and she uses her story to help others. She's inspired and driven to find out answers about her mother's murder and to learn more about her biological family. What a story. That is, yeah, that's one of the, I don't even really have words for it. That's just a story I've never, I've never heard that story. There's, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I haven't either. But you know what's crazy is when I was reading over this, it has some similarities to the Bear Brook podcast, like the Bear Brook Killings. And I won't give anything away, but it had to do with barrels and a missing girl and stuff like that, where I like got to the end and was thinking, is this the same thing? And I just could not believe there's two. They're not that similar, but there's enough um common themes in them where if you've listened to that this is definitely different but it's just crazy that two people even do things like this it's it's just insane yeah so yeah no it was a very bizarre story and just like you get this you kind of get this vision and this image of this guy john robinson i feel like i have a very clear picture of how he just was as a person and how he conducted himself and how he just preyed on women and like you kind of can you can kind of visualize how he was, but then also how he was just a family man at home. And, you know, like you said, you feel bad for his wife and his kids and his grandkids and, and you really do. And so I, I, this, I, this story is, was really interesting to me and it really kind of got me a little bit because there were so many just like kids involved, like his own kids that were involved yeah. in it that had no idea that he was, you know, really living this secret life behind, behind their backs. And I don't know. I, I just feel like these always, these always make me think, like, do I know the people in my life? Oh, gosh. Very well. I'm a paranoid person, and I don't even go there. I, <laughs> I try to avoid thinking that all the time. We're going to change gears real quick, but several months ago, a lovely lady named Whitney Almarez wrote us to tell us that her sister's birthday, Sierra's birthday is this month, and wanted us to say happy birthday to her. Months ago, she planned this. Literally yes. months ago. That's an amazing sister to do that. And we actually met them in Alabama, and I sort of slipped that we were doing this, and she caught me, and I think we played it off. But yeah, yeah so thank you so much uh, for – and happy birthday. That's what I actually need to say, not thank you so much. Yeah. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Happy birthday, Sierra. Thank you for being born. <laughs> we can do that one. So yeah. <laughs> we'll bring it around. And so then we had a really longer episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Our last thing before we go, it's just our hero segment. Not just. I love this. It's one of my favorite things it's that we do. It's not just. It is my favorite. Yeah. It's the beginning of the month, so we are doing our hero segment. Okay. So here it is. And so last month, we got so many people really love the story about the donor family. It was really incredible. And I've had pictures. She sent us pictures of the little guy, and he's doing so well. And other people have sent us news articles. It's been really cool. I'm so glad that everybody's really enjoying these hero segments. So here we go. This is this month's hero. I'm going to read the email. It's... Um, it's not too long. I've been a foster mom for five years and we've had some tough cases and some wonderful cases, but there's one mama who my husband and I are so proud of. Three years ago, a two-year-old girl and three-year-old boy were placed in our home. When we met their mother for the first time, we knew how much she loved her kids. We did worry about where this journey would take her and for a number of months, she really struggled. One day, everything changed. She decided she was really ready to take her life back. She worked every step of the way through rehab programs and therapies. She rode a bus up to two hours each way to pick up her kids for visits and to attend meetings. She got a job, an apartment, and a car. She was a young single mother to two little ones. After living with us for one year, her kids were reunified with her. 
That was almost two years ago. This young mother has done everything for her kids ever since. Samantha is my hero, and I'm so lucky to have her in my life. From Sarah Aww. L. That's so great. You just love to hear stories like that where everything turns out so nicely and the mom was able to turn things around. I love that. You don't hear those yeah, all the time in foster stories. So it's really incredible and so great that she thinks this is so great. And I don't know. I just love people yeah. and these kind of things. No, you don't hear about it a lot. And maybe Samantha doesn't listen to our show, but maybe she will hear this part of it. So yeah, Samantha, Way to go. we're so happy for you and so proud of you. Yeah, that's awesome. Samantha, if, if you do listen to this, just play the Mariah Carey song. Again, we can't afford it. But if you play it, just know that we're thinking of you when you listen to it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we are all done for this week. We will be back next week. Mandy, what is what is it? Same time? Same time, same place, different story. Have a great week. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.